0: This is the Journal of American History podcast for January 2014. Richard Rubin is the author of Confederacy of Silence, a true tale of the new Old South, a book that examines the complexities of Southern memory, largely based on Rubin's experience as a newspaper reporter in Greenwood, Mississippi in the late 1980s. He has written for the Atlantic Monthly, the New York Times Magazine, the New Yorker, the Smithsonian, and from 2008 to 2010 was the V. Brands Visiting Professor of Creative Writing at St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York. One of the things that I immediately liked about Richard when I went to his website is that there's a photograph of him with a very warm smile, and in the background is a beautiful harbor with a number of sailboats. And the caption under Richard's photograph is, Richard Rubin with other people's boats. How could you not like somebody that has a wonderful caption like that and also writes important books? Richard, welcome and thanks so much for taking the time to do this.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Ed.
0: Our conversation today focuses on Richard's 2013 book, The Last of the Doughboys, The Forgotten Generation and Their Forgotten World War. Among the many virtues of the book is Rubin's gift to readers of his conversations with the last remaining American veterans of the Great War, all of them now past. His book is more than this, although just these stories would have made a valuable book. Rubin has woven these stories together into his careful excavation of the layers of remembrance and forgetfulness of the Great War in the United States. The result is a book that appears at the perfect time, just in advance of the centennial of this first global war. So Richard, let me start by asking you, uh, in your first pages, you write, uh, these are your words, on the field of American memory, World War I occupies the slim no man's land between the archaic and the modern. Could you talk a little bit about that no man's land and how you envision it between the archaic and the modern?
1: Well, you know, World War I is the first war that, uh, first of all, was captured uh, with technology that we recognize, you know, the Civil War. We all know those beautiful sepia-toned carte de visite uh, that uh, everybody took before they marched off to battle. And we all know Matthew Brady's photos of the dead at Antietam, for instance, and things like that. But World War I was a war for which we had motion pictures and sound recordings. And it's a war that featured weaponry that we now recognize. Uh, machine guns, uh, airplanes, uh, tanks things like that. And so in a way, uh, in a lot of ways, actually, it, it really is the first modern war. And yet looking back at it now, it seems so, so long ago and so removed from our experience of life today. And and that's not a, a new thing either. I uh, mentioned in the book that um, back around 1974, 75, when I was seven or eight years old, Uh, driving into the city um, with my mother from Westchester County, New York, and we were on the Major Deegan Expressway, and she pointed up at the Bronx VA Hospital as we passed it, and she said that there were still men in that hospital who had never recovered from being gassed in World War I, and that seemed impossible to me because even back then, uh, in the mid-1970s, World War I seemed uh, so distant, uh, in our past as to be unreachable uh, it, it, it I guess in part it 's because so much has happened since then, um, and so much has changed since then. but the first world war, in fact was the catalyst for those changes that have now rendered the world it occupied
0: nearly unrecognizable to us even even aesthetic changes right isn 't World war one the, the first war in which soldiers do not try and look decorative. That that they become targets if they're like that. I mean, the difference between World War One uh, battlefield and uh, what the Union Army at Gettysburg looked out uh, the third day of the Pickett Pettigrew Charge in this kind of spectacle of of color and lines. That there's a drabness to the aesthetic of war that sets in in World War One. Is that right? Do you think, or did that come a little earlier? No, I would say actually it happened during World War One. Probably the most notable
1: example of that is that at the start of the war, uh, the standard French infantry uniform consisted of blue tunic and bright red pants. And um, those pants didn't make it, I think, out beyond 1915 or so because they were just such an appealing and obvious target. So, you know... Uh, British uniforms uh, also I think if you look at Boer War uniforms they're much uh, the 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 tone of khaki that they used was uh, a much brighter and more visible and uh, so yeah I would say I would say you're right there of course there were a lot of uniforms that were throwbacks to earlier times there were a lot of uh, people who fought as Zouaves for instance in World War 1 which is a wonderful old term that applies to uh, North African soldiers who went into battle wearing short tunics and balloon pants and fezes on their heads. Uh, this was actually a popular uniform for certain particularly jaunty units in the Civil War. The American Civil War. Uh, the Zouaves who fought in World War One were actual Zouaves from North Africa, and these were the uniforms that, of course, they would wear as a matter uh, as a matter of course. There were uh, a lot of Scottish soldiers went into battle uh, in full Highland regalia, including kilts, things like that. But I, I think that as the war dragged on and trench warfare became what we all know it it was. Uh, these uniforms uh, became increasingly uh, impractical. Probably uh, one of the classic images of that war that I think everybody thinks of when they think about that war is the Pickelhaube, the spiked German helmet. Uh, which goes way back in Germany, back before even the franco prussian war it 's interesting a lot of people uh, used that in propaganda posters as an illustration of the barbarity of Germans, as if the spike on top of the helmet was an additional weapon that they can use when it was it was strictly decorative, um, but a very interesting thing about the pickle however, is uh, it too made a very alluring target i mean these you know these were very highly decorated helmets in addition to this shiny brass spike on top they also had a very large uh, shiny brass emblem on the front that really covered the whole front of the helmet uh, and it 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 varied depending on what state you were from and what branch of the service you were in but it was quite large and so Uh, as soon as the German army realized that this helmet, this pickle halber was a liability rather than replace it. What they did was issue canvas covers for the helmet. And they were quite elaborate as you might imagine, because it it wasn't just a simple tarp that you could put over uh, the pickle halber to cover it up. They wanted it to look good to still retain the shape of the pickle halber. So it's a multi-piece canvas cover that retains the shape of the pickle halbe, and yet I, I can't think of many things more ridiculous uh, that came out of that war than retaining your ornate spiked helmet but covering it with a dull tan uh, canvas cover. And and halber were not really, they were leather, they were not really uh, protective helmets. So the Germans uh, replaced them ultimately in 1916 with a helmet that looks fairly close to what we think of as the World War II German helmet. And I should also point out that before 1916, uh, British soldiers didn't wear steel helmets either. They just wore soft field caps. Uh, and so, you know, uh, there were a lot of a lot of ways in which. Uh, jaunty old school uniforms uh, had to give way to the realities of modern war.
0: Yeah. And, and one last thing, just on this, this change to the modern, um, I'm remembering from some diaries of, of medics that they're brought into a new world of, of wound and damage to the body by the kind of new weaponry uh, that, uh, that you mentioned. And I, I'm trying to remember, but refresh, uh, did some of the veterans that you spoke with talk, talk about the kinds of, of wounds and ghastly vistas that they saw? Uh, they did, of course, on, on the battlefields,
1: you know, they did, but they didn't, um, They didn't get terribly explicit. I remember one of the first people I interviewed, J. Lawrence Moffat, a wonderful man who had uh, a great deal of experience. He was in the 26th Division, nicknamed the Yankee Division, because it was composed of... National Guard from, uh, the six New England states, and they were the first division to go across in full in the fall of 1917. So he saw a great deal of action. And the first time I interviewed him in July of 2003, I asked him if he'd ever seen anybody, uh, killed. And he said, no. And, uh, I went back to see him again on Veterans Day 2003. And in the interim, I interviewed, uh, maybe a half dozen or more other veterans. And his answer, um, just uh, didn't seem right to me the second time I visited him with everything I'd heard in the interim. So I asked I asked him about it again, and this time I didn't say, "Are you sure you didn't see anybody killed?" I just said, "Did you see anybody killed?" Uh, and uh, this time he said, uh, "One time, yes, I did." And I said, "What happened?" He said, "Well, we were we were moving from one place to another during a bombardment." And uh, I saw uh, a man fall, and I went over to uh, to tell him to put his gas mask on. When I turned him over, he was dead. His face was all mutilated. That's exactly how he described it. He used the word mutilated. That was probably about as graphic a description uh, as I got from anybody uh, speaking about other people. George Bryant, uh, who himself was very badly wounded by bombs dropped by a German airplane, described his wounds pretty I wouldn't say graphically, but uh, in pretty much detail. He told me exactly where he got hit. Uh, He got a piece of shrapnel uh, through the eye, which miraculously did not take his eye out. Another one through uh, his shoulder. uh, Another one through his hip. And uh, another one knocked his teeth out. Uh, which was really, really kind of startled me. I think more than anything else. Uh, that's not the kind of thing that you think of happening, you know, in, in warfare. You don't think of people getting their teeth knocked out. Uh, but uh, that that was pretty graphic. But in, in general, you know, the people I interviewed uh, were pretty stoic, and I don't think they were inclined to dwell on these things. It, it often took some some digging to get at those kinds of memories. Uh, And it's very careful digging. I I would liken it to archeology, span where you have to sift through things very, very carefully because you don't want to damage anything in the process. And uh, that's the kind of uh, digging and prodding it took often to get these memories out of, of some of these folks. Now, this was not the case with all of them. There was a gentleman I interviewed named Bill Lake, who was a machine gunner from the 91st Division, which was nicknamed the Wild West Division. And one of the very first things he told me was that one day during the Battle of meuse he was sitting on a, a dirt embankment talking to a friend of his who was seated about two feet away. And a German sniper shot and killed his friend while they were talking that close. And, um... They found the sniper, he said, he was up in a tree and they didn't even give him a chance to surrender. They just killed him right there in the tree. And uh, But he kept coming back to this story again and again over the course of our conversation that first day. Uh, and the thing he kept saying about it was he picked him instead of me. As if this German sniper, instead of killing his friend, had actually consciously chosen to spare Bill Lake's life. 85 years earlier and that clearly had such a profound uh impact on him that it was something that he was never really able to bury uh it wasn't uh, it, it it wasn't a story that he could just repress he needed to talk about it and he talked about it a lot and uh so you know I frankly consider that to be a kind of graphic description of violence, even though the only word he used was killed. But if you think about what it might be like to sit next to somebody two feet away from them, having a conversation, and that man is shot and killed by a rifle from a good distance away, uh, that's a violent act. And um, you could see why it would stick with them.
0: I want to go to to the heart of the book it, at least for me the 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 decade long process of as you say excavation of these stories your meetings with these uh people all of whom i think were were over 100 and some well into their hundreds uh all of whom i think are are gone now and you think about them and you think out of them to write this uh Wonderful kind of cultural history of America at at war. Tell listeners about how you decided to do this and why, and the process by which you found these people, and then some of your favorite stories, <clears throat> some of the most revelatory stories that that are sort of at the at the top of your mind as as we talk together.
1: Well, first of all, uh, you're right. The youngest person I interviewed for this book was 101 years old. The oldest uh, was 113. And um, they, they are all gone. The last uh, American veteran of World War I, Frank Buckles, died February 27, 2011, at the age of 110. Uh, and, in fact, there are no living veterans of World War I anywhere in the world at this point. He was not the very last, uh, but he was, I think, the third last. You know, I've, I've been interested in World War I for as long as I can remember. One of the reasons I've been interested in it, I think, is because it's, it's so overlooked in this country today. I was born in 1967, and so really from my earliest consciousness, this was true. Um, but I also noticed that everywhere I went, there were monuments to World War I. So I figured that once upon a time, this was very important. Uh, to us and to our national identity, and I wondered why this was no longer the case. Back in early 2003, I was uh, supposed to be at work on a different book, actually, about genealogy, and I was procrastinating, which is something that writers do very well, Uh, and I was listening to WNYC, I lived in Manhattan at that time, and I was listening to WNYC, the public radio station, and the guest that day on the show I was listening to was speaking about the World War II generation. And he uh, recited a statistic, which I've heard pretty often, uh, that 1,000 World War II veterans die every day. And his voice took on a very urgent tone, and he said, we must get their stories now while we still can. And for some reason that day, I had a contrary thought. I thought, you know, I know lots of World War II veterans. In fact, I lived in a small apartment building on the Upper West Side uh, back then, and I could count three World War II veterans living in that small building back at that time, I thought, I've heard a lot of World War II stories, but I could not remember the last time I had met a World War I veteran uh, and heard a World War I story. And I thought, you know, I wonder if you could still do that. Um, it was 2003. Like I said, I did the math in my head. The war ended in 1918. I figured somebody who was 20 in 1918 would be 105 in 2003. And I knew from the New York Times obituary page which I read every day uh, that people do occasionally live to be that old, sometimes even a bit older, and I figured there were 4 million Americans in uniform in World War 1. There I should be able to find two or three Living American Veterans of World War I, interview them, maybe I'll write an article for Memorial Day, and then I'll get back to this this book on genealogy. And, you know, that hope was bolstered by the fact that at that time, the Department of Veterans Affairs had a page on its website with an actuarial table uh, that offered statistical figures for how many living American veterans there were of each war at that time. And this was not I learned later based on actual records. This was just a mathematical projection. But according to this page, in 2003, 85 years after the war ended, there were still, I believe it said, 1,500 living American veterans of World War I. Now, I know today that that figure was Very wrong, uh, way overinflated. And in fact, a few months later, based in part by calls from me, uh, they adjusted that figure to fewer than 200, um, which I don't think was based on anything either. Even that was high, uh. I thought the VA would be a good place to start. I figured that they would have a pretty good database of living American veterans of World War I. And in my naivete, I also figured that they would be happy to share this information with me. And I was quickly disabused of that notion. I was told that um, privacy regulations uh, prohibited them from sharing any kind of information of that nature, Um, but that in any event, they didn't have any such database, which I found particularly surprising. Once upon a time, a friend of mine went to a flea market and brought me back as a present, something she found there. It was a two-page spread from Life Magazine from 1949. And on these two pages are dozens of little postage stamp-sized photos of very old men with a listing of their names and their ages and their place of residence. And the text Explained that these were all the survivors, north and south of the Civil War, in 1949, 84 years after the war ended. And I can't to this day imagine how Life Magazine could find them in 1949, but the federal government had no record of living World War One veterans in 2003. I, I, I—it's mystifying to me. Um, but I do believe that that they really didn't have these records uh, because. About three years afterward, I started getting calls from people at the VA asking me if I had a list of living American veterans of World War I and if I would share it with them. Uh, which I did, even though, to be honest with you, I was kind of miffed at the VA because uh, they told me they didn't have any records except possibly pension records. And I asked them if they would do a blind mailing on my behalf to people who might be on those pension rolls, you know, uh, just giving them my name and address. And I didn't need to have anybody's name and address. And they wouldn't even do that, even though I offered to pay for the mailing. Uh, So, you know, I, I struck out on my own, and I started doing it pretty haphazardly. I I called um, VA hospitals and nursing homes, and VFW posts, American Legion posts. Uh, interesting thing about VFW and the American Legion is that they don't they don't have any kind of centralized records. Uh, you have to call post by post, and that just wasn't going to work after a while. And this went on for probably about three months until I finally got my first really lucky break in this search and it came from the government of France you know with the they, they, the government of France in 1998 started awarding the Legion of Honor their highest decoration to uh, living American veterans who could prove that they had served on French soil during World War I And they had the resources to undertake an intensive search. Uh, They enlisted the VFW and the American Legion. They ran ads in newspapers and magazines around the country. And in 1998-99... They identified about 550 or so eligible veterans and gave out uh, 550 or so legions of honor, and they kept very good records. They did not keep track of who was still living and who had passed away, but I was very fortunate to be put in touch with an adjutant there, a gentleman named Nam Do Kao. It was half French, half Vietnamese. And he was scheduled to be rotated back to Paris uh, in just a few weeks' time. But uh, he was so moved by what I was trying to do that in his free time, he photocopied all 550 or so applications and then FedExed them to me. Uh, and he would not take a dime for any of this. Um, and so i I got my first big break in the search for uh American World War One veterans from the government of france and and at a time pretty poor franco american relations. you might recall that the spring of two thousand and three was the Spring of Freedom fries and things like that uh
0: but without without the government of France, this book wouldn't exist and how many veterans uh did you end up interviewing well that's
1: an interesting question because that comes down to the question of what what is a veteran or who is a veteran. And I address, I address that question in the book. I tell the story, for instance, of Harold Gardner from Choconut, Pennsylvania, who was uh, received a draft notice and showed up at the train station in Binghamton, New York and was issued a, a pair of socks and an army blanket and was sitting on the train waiting for it to pull out of the station when an officer came on board and told them the armistice had been signed that morning and they could all go home. My favorite part is that nobody moved for a while because they all thought it was a joke. And uh, so, you know, is he a World War One veteran? It, it's, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I can even answer that question, but I interviewed about three dozen men and women in, in total.
0: Mm-hmm. Are there particular stories that continue to to come back to you from your conversations with them continue to haunt you perhaps? Oh,
1: yeah, quite a few. I mean, that story I told you about Bill Lake, I I think about that all the time, you know, just what that must have been like and the fact that he carried that around literally for a number, uh, for another 86 years. He had, uh, there are a lot of stories connected to him that are not necessarily connected directly to the war. For instance, I got to visit with him twice, and something I like to do with people when I got to visit with them more than once was ask them a lot of the same questions a second time to see if their answers would change or maybe they'd reveal more details. Um, And when I first visited with him, one of the first questions I asked him and one of the first questions I asked anybody is, what were your parents' names? And there was a a really um, uncomfortable moment when I said, what were your parents' names? And he said, my dad, and his face took on a very pained expression, and he was quiet for a moment. He said, you know, my dad died when I was five or six years old, and he he told me that his father, he'd grown up in Missouri, and his father had gone off to Oklahoma to check out some land for homesteading. That's how long ago this was. People still homesteaded back then. And his father had gotten very sick. He'd gotten pneumonia or something and had come home just in time to die. And he could not summon his father's name, his own father's name. And it was a very, it was a very painful moment. And when I visited him again six months later, I asked him, uh, what was your father's name? And without hesitating, he said, Richard, just like yours. And, uh, it was really remarkable. And, um, some months later after he passed away, I visited with his 73 year old daughter. And when I told her that story, she clapped her hand over her mouth, uh, and said, uh, she'd never known her grandfather's name for as long as she could remember. Her father could not recall it. Um, there was another moment, uh, he talked a lot about, he was in a machine gun company and he had a captain who everybody in the company loved and, um, he, uh the, the captain, uh, Bill Lake, uh, had an interesting experience. He came down with measles uh, while en route to France. And so when his division disembarked in England on its way to France, they separated him and put him in the hospital for about six weeks. And so he didn't catch up with his unit until the very beginning of the Battle of meuse the last great battle of the war. And he said he marched all day to catch up with them. And when he got there, uh, the first person he saw was his beloved captain. And he went to salute his captain and his captain caught his arm and said, don't salute, you don't know who may be watching. Shake hands instead. Then he got quiet for a second. He said, he was killed that night. And I said, what was his name? And he could not recall his captain's name. And when I went back to see him again six months later, I said, What was your captain's name? And he said, Worship, just like that. And I happened to have found a copy of uh, the official divisional history of the 91st Division. And I looked this man up uh, just using that last name. And his name was Elijah W. Worship. He was actually from Evansville, Indiana. I Googled that name. And on somebody's genealogical website, uh, there was a letter that. Captain Worsham's replacement wrote home to a friend of his in Evansville who had inquired about how the captain had died a really beautiful letter which I which I quote in full in the book and it really paints a beautiful picture of this this captain who was killed and I wouldn't have I wouldn't have known any of that if I hadn't tried again and asked him uh what was your captain's name and if that had been if that hadn't been a particularly good day for his memory so there are a lot of the stories that i remember best from talking to these people are not necessarily purely stories that they told the stories they told were sort of the seed of what i remember uh, of of what became a very memorable story to me Uh, but things went on uh, from there Uh, probably the best example of that is eugene lee a gentleman from syracuse new york who was the last survivor of the battle of bellow wood And uh, it was a very interesting story related to his service. He enlisted in the Marines as soon as America entered the war. He had just turned 18 and um, dropped out of high school to enlist in the Marines. And his uh, regiment was one of the very first American outfits to be sent to France. And at the Battle of Belleau Wood on June 12, 1918, he was shot through the wrist. And even though it was a bad wound, he refused to allow himself to be evacuated until he helped evacuate more seriously wounded Marines, for which he was later awarded the Silver Star. And while he was recuperating in the hospital, he became friends with another Marine who had been wounded at Belleau Wood named Joe Winook. And they became... They became very, very close friends, and when it came time for the two of them to be sent back to the front, Joe Winok requested a transfer to Eugene Lee's company so they could serve together. And they got back just in time for Meuse-Argonne uh, and saw some terrible action there. Well, when Eugene Lee was shot through the wrist on June 12, 1918, he dropped his mess kit, and 80 years later, a French collector digging around with a metal detector dug it up. And saw, saw his name on it and did a little research and discovered to his astonishment that Mr. Lee was still alive 80 years later. He actually sent a picture of it to Mr. Lee to confirm that this was his. And Mr. Lee did confirm this. And then this French collector, rather than returning it to Eugene Lee 80 years later, sold it on eBay. I, I was told this story by a friend of Mr. Lee's, much younger friend named Jim Casey, uh, who'd served in the Marines in the 50s. And uh, he showed me this picture, and I asked him if he knew who had the mess kit cover at that point, and he said he didn't. But if I got to France, I should look up a couple of people, and, and maybe they could tell me something about it. And I did look these people up. They all claimed not to know anything about who had it. And then, through happenstance, I met a big, big collector, of uh, French World War I artifacts, a gentleman named Georges Bailly. And uh, I went to go see his collection, and I showed him the picture. And he said, yeah, I heard about that. Somebody else bought it, not me. And then he asked me if I had really met and interviewed Eugene Lee. And I said I had. And he said, do you know the name Joe Winook? And I just kind of stared at him for a second, mystified. And I said, I do. But how do you know about Joe Winook? And he went and he dug through this drawer, this big drawer he had full of cutlery, uh, World War One cutlery that he had uh, found rooting around Bellow Wood. And he found a fork and he brought it over and handed it to me. And it was Joe Winook's fork that he had dropped at Bellow Wood during that battle. and. He he had an index card that corresponded to this fork. Everything he had in his collection had its own card, uh, full of information. And he found that fork in 1993. And even before Google had been able to find all kinds of information on Joe Winook, based on that. But the one piece of the story he didn't have that I did have was that Joe Winook was killed on the last night of the war. Mm. Mm. Uh, by a random German shell that had been just thrown up from a few miles away, and um you know that i didn 't have that full story until five and a half years after I met Mr. Lee and he died just a few months after I interviewed him, so these are the stories that i that I remember the best I mean
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: go ahead. Uh, I was going to say George Bryant, whom I mentioned earlier, I probably in terms of just Raw war stories. I probably remember his the very best because they were the most dramatic and traumatic. He was the only person I interviewed out of out of the three dozen or so men and women I interviewed who actually got emotional in the process of talking to me. He broke down and cried at one point, recalling uh, men from his battery. He was in uh, in uh, the 76th Field Artillery, and he was recalling men in his battery who were killed on the last night of the war. He just broke down and started sobbing. He had a lot of very dramatic stories, like, like about the time that a German airplane flew over and dropped several bombs on them. Uh, and he got hit, he said, by everyone. But, uh, you know, for the most part, as I said, the people I interviewed were very, very stoic. And so the stories they would tell didn't tend to glamorize warfare or what they'd seen or play up the drama. Just to give you a one example of that, uh, Lawrence Moffat, who I mentioned earlier, had been in the Yankee division. Um, I asked him if he'd ever been gassed. And he said, oh, yes, all the time. Practically all the shells had gas in them. And I just kind of stared at him for a minute because um, he was only the second person I ever interviewed. and, And I hadn't expected to get something like that so early on. And I said, what was that like? And he said, oh, it wasn't too bad. I just lost my voice for a few days and eventually it would come back. I never went to medical for it. Now, if you know anything at all about what mustard gas and chlorine gas and phosgene gas did to people in world war one it was a lot worse than that um i i defy you to find another book with a description of the effects of poison gas where you know laryngitis is listed high up on the list of of effects but that's just the kind of guy he was he told me several times nothing had ever been hard for him and knowing what he saw during the war i know that's not true but that's just that was just his outlook on life. A lot of the most dramatic stories that are still with me uh, are kind of indirect results of my interviews with these people rather than direct.
0: Sure, sure. I want to go back to uh, your your uh, mention of being overseas and ask you to talk a little bit about sort of having these voices in your head, but being on these these charged, the uh, ground you mentioned, and this reminded me very much of my own travels uh, in in Eastern Europe to uh, to holocaust sites. you say the earth is constantly regurgitating the detritus of that war, and it reminded me of of something I should have known earlier than I did, but some years ago, when I read about the the number of people that still to this day are being killed. By World War I uh, ordinance so I farmers and, and all of that. Uh, what was it like to be at, at these places and to have this ground, you know, still really living in a way? It, it had to be a, a, a quite visceral experience with these voices in your head.
1: Well, you know, honestly, I was completely unprepared for it. You you and I are Americans, and the last war to be fought on our soil here was the Civil War. If you go to, um, I once lived in Memphis for a couple of years and spent a lot of time at Shiloh, which is a beautiful, beautiful place. And they really don't look like battlefields; they look like beautiful national parks with a lot of monuments. Uh, this is not what what France is like. Uh, World War One was so. Uh, vast, and so so much was dropped on it in terms of weaponry. And so many people were killed in that war, and it drained the country's resources to such an extent that after the war, France had neither the men nor the resources to reclaim the land that had been destroyed during the war. And so uh, it was just left as it was. And what this means is that In certain parts of France, every patch of woods you walk into is still riddled with trenches. You might not know at very first glance that they're trenches, but I would say a few seconds into the experience, you will know. They look to some extent like dry creek beds, but they're much narrower and much deeper than your typical Uh, dry creek bed, and they zigzag this way and that, you know, every 10 yards or so, and they intersect with a lot of other dry creek beds. There's no mistaking them for that. They're, They're indisputably trenches. And what's more, the Germans actually built their trenches with concrete. So those trenches are still in excellent condition and cannot be mistaken for anything else. I stepped into a patch of woods once at Verdun, and the forest floor was dimpled to the extent that there was not even a square yard of flat ground it was all it was all shell holes there's no mistaking what you're looking at and and thus there's no forgetting what happened there and this of course doesn't even mention all of the concrete bunkers uh, and pill boxes uh, that are still up there in the woods and the heights above the Mews. one of my favorite Uh, discoveries was something called the Crown Prince Bunker, which was a bunker built by uh, Crown Prince Wilhelm, the oldest son of Kaiser Wilhelm, who was a general commanding uh, one of the German armies in France. And a bunker was built for him that really looks more like a posh chateau. In parts of France, well, Bello Wood... Uh, which we discussed a little earlier, was a forest, a private hunting ground before the war, and after the war, it reverted to being a forest. So most of what was dropped there eventually got buried by the soil and thus has to be dug up with a metal detector which uh, the French have actually outlawed. Uh, doesn't stop people from doing it. But uh, Meuse-Argonne and other areas like that, the tool sector, Saint-Miel, that was mostly farmland before the war and after the war it reverted to being farmland. And farmland, as you know, is tilled and plowed constantly and things are constantly being churned up. And in certain parts of France, literally every time a field is plowed, things come up. And I would not have believed this for myself if uh, it weren't for a gentleman named Jean-Paul DeVries, who has a little museum in Romaine, which is uh, where the American mise Cemetery is, of artifacts. And he took me out one day. Uh, one of our first stops was a little two-acre plot on the outskirts of Romaine. It was a beautiful morning in June of 2009, and the field had just been plowed. We walked around that field, and in five minutes... I looked down, and just sitting there on the surface of the soil were five perfect bullets. And I scooped them up, and I, uh, there was other stuff in that field, too. There was a, um, a piece of a jacket from an American pineapple grenade, and uh, there were cartridges, there was a comb, there was a button, which I later identified as being from a Bavarian uniform. Uh, and right before we left, I looked down, and there, sitting right there on the surface of the soil, was an unexploded shell a little smaller than my foot. I really wanted to bend over and pick it up because I'm just not all that bright. Monsieur DeVries stopped me and told me that every year people in France are killed or maimed by unexploded uh, World War I ordnance. And it's funny because I, I include a picture of that shell in the book, and I also... Um, I use a slide of it when I give a PowerPoint talk. And uh, somebody at one of these talks looked at the shell and he said, you see those two rings on the shell? He said that shell also had gas in it. So it could have been a very bad outcome for me. In another field, uh, maybe an hour and a half away one morning, uh, in about 15 minutes, I found enough World War One shrapnel to fill a, a shopping bag. It's just, And these are not special days. Probably one of the most interesting things was... Uh, Mr. DeVries took me through a a, a little sparse uh, patch of woods and uh, also part of the Musargon battlefield and found a lot of stuff. It was a German bottle and there were conical caps that went on mortars and things like that. And there had been a storm a couple of days earlier and a big old tree had been felled. And he got very excited when he saw this and he rushed over and he beckoned for me to follow. And there was this big thicket of roots, maybe 20 feet in diameter. And... He walked up to the roots, and he pointed to me. There were these shiny little spots in it. There were bullets in this thicket of roots, dozens and dozens of bullets. And he told me that the tree's roots draw them up out of the soil with water, and they get trapped in this tangle of roots. And then when the tree falls, it's all exposed. Kind of a beautiful metaphor, in a way, I think, for how the war is, is, you know just below the surface. And it just takes one little act to bring it up. But experts say that this kind of stuff is going to continue popping up in France for the next two or 300 years. My goodness.
0: Well, let's think about uh, what you just said, that this stuff keeps popping up. Uh, Now think about the tension between forgetfulness and and remembrance. Uh, You used the term uh, forgotten twice in your subtitle, the forgotten generation and their forgotten world war. You also uh, say in, in the book to readers, uh, these are your your words, uh, uh, that the book is about Americans' experience of the war at the front, behind the lines, and at home, how it infiltrated, influenced, shaped, and determined every last facet of life in the United States. So readers can can learn from your book about that. But this is the Part I'd like you to to talk about as we kind of think about concluding the conversation and how it continues to do so to this day. So on one hand, there is a forgottenness about the war, how monuments become invisible, even though they're in plain sight, how the war is not at the forefront of our memory. And yet it, it lingers beneath the surface, I'm guessing your meaning, and continues to do so to this day. Can you talk a little about that dissonance, why it's been forgotten, how it lingers on, and maybe in conclusion, what your expectations and hopes are for these centennial years?
1: Well, you know, the why is not such a simple question. The the obvious answer that people always um, arrive at is that, well, it just got upstaged by World War II. But that kind of thing doesn't just happen especially not something on the scale of World War I. Remember that this was a war we were only in for 19 months, but in those 19 months, we lost 117,000 Americans. So this was no small war. At home, the war touched really every corner of American life. It's, It's not like today when uh, you know, a war can be going on halfway around the world, but it doesn 't really interrupt uh, our daily transaction of life. The war touched everything in this country. I posit in the book my belief about why Americans have forgotten World War I. It goes back to that figure I gave you of one hundred and seventeen thousand dead uh, in just nineteen months. You know World War I was not World War two; we were not attacked. Uh, There was no Pearl Harbor. And um, the war, in fact, was extremely controversial in this country all the way up until the very moment we entered it. The only reason it stopped being controversial was that there was no room for dissent in this country from April 6, 1917 on. Uh, And people who uh, objected to the war and spoke out against it were jailed in many cases. And so um, that dissent was just quashed. But you know, after the war uh, and after the haze of war burned away, after the parade stopped, people looked at that figure 117,000. And it wasn't just 117,000. A great many people who uh, managed to come home from the war alive were still broken. Uh, they'd lost limbs. A great many people had been exposed to gas, which weakened their lungs and just took more time to kill them. Even though they they didn't die before November eleventh, nineteen eighteen, they did ultimately die prematurely as casualties of that war. People were blinded. Uh, there was an awful lot of PTSD uh, that was not recognized as such, uh, and there was no there were no treatments available for it and really no understanding of it. So there were a great many suicides uh, of World War I veterans in this country. And people looked at that and they thought, what was that all for, you know, to make the world safe for democracy, quote unquote, is the world safe for democracy now? Of course it's not. Uh, Americans reacted, as as a lot of people might, by withdrawing. They became uh, uh, isolationists. They withdrew into themselves. They didn't want to have anything to do with foreign entanglements. And they didn't want to think about that war anymore. They didn't want to talk about it. And so at a certain point uh, in, I would peg it probably around the onset of the Depression, uh, Americans just really stopped writing about that war. Uh, For a good while after the war, there were quite a few memoirs that were written and published in accounts. Uh, But after around 1929 or so, people stopped writing about the war. People stopped talking about it. They stopped building monuments to that war. That doesn't mean, though, that uh, everybody stopped talking about the war. For one thing, the British never stopped talking about it. In fact, as the, they get more and more distance from the war, they talk about it more and more. They kept writing their accounts of the war, and their accounts kept finding their way to America. And those were the only accounts uh, that of World War I that found their way to America you know, from the Great Depression on for many, many years. And uh, so Americans who were still interested in reading about the war had only British accounts to tell them about it. And British accounts of the war back then, and to a certain extent to this day, are not very charitable toward Americans. The British were very angry that America did not enter the war in 1914 that we waited until 1917 and that we refused to serve under British generals in the trenches like uh, British colonial and dominion troops did. And so British accounts of that war that were published back then and to to an extent today really downplay America's contribution to that war. Uh, they say America entered very late. They didn't show up in time to do anything. Uh, their troops were undisciplined and poorly trained. Their officers were no good and on and on and on. And unfortunately, I think a lot of Americans internalized that. That has become the narrative of World War I that most Americans recognize to the extent that they recognize any narrative of that war. Um, and it's tragic, really, because, uh, you know, America uh, really played a very, very important role in that war. It's undeniable that it would have come out differently had America not gotten involved. And yet most Americans have forgotten that. Uh, today. And I think I think that that plays a very big role in that war being forgotten. I mean, think about what Americans think about today when we think about World War I. We think about Flanders Fields. Well, Americans didn't fight in Flanders Fields for the most part. We fought in Champagne. We fought in Lorraine, but we did not, for the most part, fight in Flanders Fields. Uh, we did not go over the top kicking soccer balls. We didn't write very much poetry uh, during the war but these are the images we didn't fight at the Somme but these are the images that Americans have of World War I and Americans are excluded from those images so um, you know you asked uh, uh, what my hopes are for uh, the centennial I think my fondest hopes are that Americans somehow rediscover uh, their part in World War One. And that, um, you know, we we and I'm not saying that we should necessarily celebrate it. I, to be perfectly honest with you, am not entirely sure that America should have entered World War One. You know, I go back and forth on it. I would say at best I'm ambivalent about it. But but, you know, you can't change the past. We were in that war. Uh, It was one of the most influential things that's ever happened in human history. And we did play a very big part in it, a very important part in it. And I think that we need to recognize that, Um, you know, this generation I labeled the forgotten generation. uh, They are, to a great extent, responsible for that themselves. These were uh, unassuming people for the most part. They grew up in very difficult circumstances. Um, uh, They grew up, uh, almost everybody I talked to, it seems, lost a sibling in childhood. And a very, very great number of people I spoke to lost their fathers in childhood. Uh, They grew up uh, believing life was hard and that it would be hard and that everybody had it the same way. And for the most part, it seems to me they weren't comfortable calling attention to themselves and their troubles and what they had been through. And, uh, you know, so when they came back home, there were those parades that lasted a few months, and then, then they had to get uh, set about the business of building their lives over again. There was no GI Bill of Rights for them. Um, many had lost their businesses or their farms had gone to ruin while they'd been off, and they, they had nobody to depend on but themselves. Uh, and then the World War II generation comes along, and the World War I generation, the forgotten generation, who were the parents of what we now call the greatest generation, wanted to make sure that their children didn't have it as hard as they did. And they rallied, and they're the people who got the GI Bill of Rights passed. And the World War II generation came home and they were celebrated uh, for their accomplishments as well they should have been. Um, and uh, uh, they pretty much sucked up all the oxygen in the room. And, and the world, it wasn't in the nature of the World War I generation, this forgotten generation, to protest. These were, after all, their children. But I, I will say that um, I, I certainly am extremely grateful to the World War I generation for everything that they accomplished. I mean, I'm Jewish, and I fully recognize the fact that uh, if it weren't for the World War II generation, I might not well exist. Uh, because maybe Germany would have conquered America, too, and my parents, who were children at the, at the time, would have been killed. Um, so I'm certainly not going to denigrate the accomplishments of the World War II generation. But to call them the greatest generation, because they grew up during the Depression and then went off and fought and won World War II, I think is to really take a lot away from other generations. I mean, yes, they grew up during the Great Depression, but who clothed and fed and housed them during that Depression? It was this World War I generation who went off and fought another war and came back and there was no GI Bill of Rights or any kind of support for them. And so um, that's the other thing, I guess, that I hope comes out of, uh, uh, of these centennial celebrations is not just that we remember what America did in World War I, but that we remember what Americans did in World War I and who these Americans were.
0: Yeah, that's that's very well said. And I, I share that hope. And uh, if if it happens, your book will certainly play uh, an important role in that excavation. Uh, we've been talking today on this podcast with Richard Rubin, author of the 2013 book, The Last of the Doughboys, The Forgotten Generation and Their Forgotten World War. And let me just, in closing, tell listeners uh, that the website f- for this book contains some uh, short uh, uh, video of uh, some of the interviews that Richard has done with World War I veterans now past. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a joy and uh, I look forward hopefully to seeing you in Bloomington someday. Well, I'd be delighted to come. I, you know, I, I'm starting to get invitations to speak
1: all over the country. And if anybody listening to this wants to have me um, come speak uh, uh, near them, I'd be delighted to do it. I, it's always a very, very uh, gratifying experience for me to go speak and meet people because what I have found, if I can just take a moment to say this, is that this, this war and this generation have been overlooked, and there are people out there who are tremendously grateful for any attention it gets. And when I speak, almost always people show up whose fathers or grandfathers or uncles were in the war, and they bring... Um, They bring photos, they bring trench art, uh, they bring scrapbooks, uh, somebody brought their father's helmet to a recent talk, uh, and it's really, it's really wonderful to see, uh, these people, um, getting in touch with their ancestors and with their heritage in this way. And let me just mention also that I actually videotaped every interview I did. And eventually I intend to have clips from every interview up on the website, which is com.
0: Ah, that'll be wonderful. Richard, thank you again so much. Well, thank you, Ed.
1: This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the Journal of Record in American History visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. To join, call us at 812-855-7311 or visit us online at www.oah.org. In addition to receiving the journal four times a year, OAH members have access to a growing number of member benefits, Ranging from discounts on a wide variety of insurance products to discounted subscriptions to the ACLS Humanities ebook library to reduce registration fees for the annual meeting held every spring.
0: Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in March for our next episode. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at JAHCAST at oah.org.